0: From the Conversation, this is Essays on Air, where we bring you the best and most beautiful writing by Australian researchers. Today, Patrick Nunn, a professor of geography and member of the Sustainability Research Centre at the University of the Sunshine Coast, is reading his essay titled, Monsters in My Closet, How a Geographer Began Mining Myths. So you think the Loch Ness Monster never existed? That the story is a cunningly cobbled-together fiction intended to boost tourist interest in an otherwise unrelentingly dull part of Mid-Scotland? Well, dull only to some. Think again. The embryonic science of geomythology is breathing new life into such stories, legitimizing the essence of some, and opening up the possibility that other such folktales might not be pure fiction but actually based on memories of events our ancestors once observed. Lacking the scientific understanding available to us today, people in the past contextualised such observations in ways that made sense to them, keen that their descendants should know what had happened, not least should it happen again many such stories were passed on orally, from one generation to the next. Invariably cloaked in multiple layers of embellishment, some stories have survived until today. Science has long vilified those who argue for the existence of giant saurians lurking in the depths of Loch Ness. But there has been some rehabilitation of these monster sightings. The geologist Luigi Piccardi, who has done much to make the novel field of geomythology respectable, has argued that observations of Nessie are no more than the unusual agitation of the lake's water surface during an earthquake. The first written mention of the Loch Ness Monster in the 7th century life of St Columba notes that the dragon appears Cum ingenti fremitus, with strong shaking, before disappearing, tremefacta, shaking herself. And Picardi has noted that the most seismically active sector of the Great Glen Fault, along which periodic earthquakes occur, runs along the axis of Loch Ness. Picardi also argues that many temples built during the classical period in the eastern Mediterranean were intentionally built over geological fissures from which escaping neurotoxic gases might cause those sitting above them like Pythia in the Oracle at Delphi to go into a trance in which they could reputedly foresee future events. The Pacific Islands the focus of most of my research over the past 30 years has stories about past natural events, massive eruptions and earthquakes, giant waves, for instance, that have traditionally been regarded as largely apocryphal. I have focused on some of the stories from Pacific Island cultures about Vanished Islands, stories that come from almost every part of this vast region, nearly one-third of the Earth's surface. The idea of an entire island disappearing suddenly seems instinctively implausible, the stuff of Atlantean fantasy. Yet there are many such stories in the Pacific that seem quite believable at their cause. Take the example of Teonimenu, which probably disappeared some 400 years ago between the islands of Makira and Ulawa in the central Solomon Islands. While most local traditions remember its disappearance as the act of a vengeful cuckold, the details about the accompanying series of tsunami waves and the location of Teonimenu on the crest of a steep underwater ridge suggest this might really have happened as a result of an earthquake-induced landslip. Similar stories have been collected from central Vanuatu, where an island named Mamata abruptly disappeared about 1870. This was probably a result of an eruption-linked landslide on the underwater flanks of the giant Ambai island volcano, which today is once again threatening to erupt. With great difficulty, it is said, the survivors saved themselves, paddling north to settle on the island of Maewo, where today they recall the loss of Vanuamamata, bifo bifo yet, long, long ago. Of course, there is a limit, and that limit has been crossed when you confront many of the stories about sunken continents in the Pacific, perhaps Mu or Pacific Lemuria, dreamed up by some of its early European explorers who struggled to rationalize the existence of such a large, almost landless ocean. Some of them, like Dumont de Ville and the geologist Jules Garnier, were convinced there had once been a continent spanning the Pacific that had sunk leaning only the former mountain tops poking above the ocean surface. This theory allowed 19th century Europeans to deny the manifestly extraordinary maritime abilities of Pacific Islanders, who were portrayed as the fortunate survivors of the Cataclysm, stranded on their isolated islands. Yet stories suggesting the entire Pacific, or indeed the entire Indian Ocean, or the entire Atlantic, were once occupied by a single continent are demonstrably false, we've looked. That said, there is plenty to stoke the imagination, and even a few disingenuous geoscientists happy to add fuel to the fire. Take the sunken city off the coast of Yonaguni Island in southwest Japan, which numerous people will assure you was once part of the continental empire of Mu, that span the entire Pacific. There is no shred of real evidence of human structures off the Yonaguni coast, any more than there is of Mu. But for those untutored in the ways that sandstones and shales weather, it might appear there are giant carved steps and such like. My involuntary introduction to geomythology came in mid two thousand. When I was working at the International University of the South Pacific, based at its main teaching campus in Suva, Fiji, having won some research funding and engaged three research assistants to accompany me to the Lao Islands of Eastern Fiji, there was a coup, by far the nastiest of the four I have survived. You asked the military then? That- we will prepare ourselves for any kind of assault, as we always have been from day one. But intelligence and reliable information tells us that the military is planning an assault. I was in town that day, and before I could get back, uh, the, the, the beating and the burning and the, the robbing and stealing and ravishing uh, began to take place here uh, in, in the area here. And since that day, it has continued to go downhill. It seemed the wrong time to do field work. So I set the research assistants to work in the university library's Pacific collection searching for any published stories about Pacific Islander traditions of memorable geological events. The whole they recovered astonished me and turned my attention to how oral traditions might illuminate the geological history of the Pacific. One early example of this concerned myths about the formation of Nambukelevu, or Mount Washington, a striking volcano at the western end of Kundavu Island in Fiji. Long regarded by geologists as having erupted tens of thousands of years ago, a legend from the people of nearby Ono Island suggested otherwise. Their story goes that the chief of Ono, who was accustomed to watching the sunset from a beach on the island, found one day a mountain, Nambukelevu, had appeared at the end of Kundavu to the west. And blocked the view. Livid, he flew to western Kandavu and battled the chief of Nambukelevu, but was overwhelmed. The appearance of Nambukelevu suggests the growth of the volcano within human memory, which means about 3,000 years in Fiji. So, did the legend invalidate the science? It seems it did at the time, for years later, When a road was cut around the foot of Nambukalevu, a section through the volcano's flanks was exposed and showed buried soil with pottery fragments a sure sign of human occupation overlain by freshly deposited scoria. Clearly the legend was a more accurate indicator of the age of this volcano than science had once been. Most Pacific Islanders who have shared such stories with me surprisingly indifferent to the news that they may be true. It was never a concern to them that Western science might have once judged these stories to be fictional. They always knew otherwise. In the last 15 years my interest in geomythology and respect for many oral traditions have burgeoned. Moving from the Pacific Islands to Australia in 2010, inevitably led me to educate myself more about Australian Aboriginal stories, and what I found was beyond my wildest dreams. It began in the library of the University of New England, where I read many works by linguists who had studied Australian Aboriginal languages. While focused on the structure of the languages, many of these linguists also recorded generally as illustrations of how language was used in storytelling, ancillary details of the oral traditions of many tribes. And for several of the coastal tribes, some of the most popular stories recalled times when the ocean surface sea level, was far lower than it is today, and coastal lands were consequently far more extensive. It now seems clear that Aboriginal groups, in at least 22 locations all around the coast of Australia have preserved stories for more than 7,000 years. In a few cases, perhaps more than 10,000 years. That's roughly 280 to 400 generations. Now if Australian Aboriginal cultures were able to preserve stories so long, Could not others of the world's cultures also have done so? One well-documented example is that of the Klamath tribe in Oregon, USA, which seems to have successfully preserved a story about the eruption of Mount Mazama, the predecessor of Crater Lake, for some 7,700 years. Still, there are not many examples like that, which suggests two things. One is that Australian Aboriginal society was especially adept at intergenerational knowledge transmission. Undoubtedly true. The other is that in other cultures perhaps we have been too quick to discount the lingering fragments of memory for what they really are. A bit more contentious. Yet from Gujarat to Tamil Nadu in India and in Gaelic cultures, from Brittany in France to Cornwall and Wales in the UK, there are stories about the consequences of the ocean rising across low-lying areas of coast. Many stories recall the drowning of iconic cities and narrate the very human causes to which inundation was attributed. For instance, there are persistent stories in parts of northwest Europe about the city of Ys, that once existed on the coast, efficiently defended against the sea, perhaps in the Bay de Douarnenez, in Brittany. Dahu, daughter of the ruler of Ys, King Gradlon, became possessed by a demon, and wilfully opened the tide-gates when the sea was high, causing the city to be drowned. It is possible that this story recalls a history of sea level rising across coastal lowlands, forcing coastal cities to build and manage sea defences. Then, as sea level continued its post-glacial rise, one day, perhaps several millennia ago, the defences gave way. The ocean rushed into the city, drowning it and condemning its history to myth. Such stories celebrated in art and literature, are often regarded as integral to cultural identity. For this reason, attempts to explain them by science are sometimes resisted. Yet viewed dispassionately, it seems possible that stories from both sides of the English Channel, for example, recall times when it was much narrower than today, as indeed was the case several millennia ago. Not only are there stories like that of Ys from the north coast of Brittany, and parallel stories from that of Cornwall, but also folk tales from the Channel Islands about how people were once able to walk, crossing a few streams, from there to the French mainland. This is exactly what you would expect a few millennia back, when sea level was five to ten meters lower than it is today. What research is showing is that knowledge can be transmitted orally and with a high degree of replication fidelity for thousands of years. Using phylogenetic analysis, Jamie Tarani has demonstrated that many popular folk tales, like Little Red Riding Hood, are at least 2,000 years old. This remarkable fact does not mean, of course, that all oral knowledge is that old. But it does open up opportunities for understanding the minds of our ancestors that we never dreamed possible. Or did we? Today's episode was recorded by Michael Lund and edited by Sybilla Gross. You can see a full list of audio and music credits on our website at theconversation.com.